Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever and wherever you are listening to this podcast, welcome to the Goddess Project Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about all the ways that Apollo sucks, and this this episode has become already a little bit controversial. Now, I understand that there are a lot of people that care for Apollo. I am not one of them. Um, And I never have. I've always been sort of suspicious of him. And I've always found him a little bit slimy and shady and um, just a little bit too... What's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. He's just... I mean, people describe him as a frat boy... And people just, but I just feel like he is the most privileged, um, spoiled brat, you know, of all time. And so I do not like him. Um, And so prepare yourself in advance. If you love Apollo, either stay and see whether or not you agree or disagree with me, or feel free to not stay so that your opinion of him may not be ruined. Um, If you are new to this podcast channel, I just want to say hi. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. My PhD is in ancient history and Greco-Roman history, particularly with a focus on uh, the goddess Artemis, who has become the center of all of my research and, well, in my personal life, the center of my personal life as well. Um, I wrote a book called She Who Hunts. I don't think you could see it. Oh, yeah, you can. Here you go. Uh, She Who Hunts. So if you're interested in um, learning more about the Greek Artemis, that is a great book, if I say so myself, on uh, some of her rituals. I'm also writing a book on Artemis of Ephesus and then have a couple of other Artemis books uh, in mind. So that's my little spiel about myself. Uh, The Goddess Project podcast began as a place where I could just talk about things I wanted to talk about uh, outside of the classroom. I teach at York University in Toronto, Canada. And so um, the material that the curriculum that is for class has to encompass a, a variety of learning outcomes. And often there isn't a lot of time to discuss Uh, some of the fun things about ancient mythology or symbolism or all of those things. And so I find myself staying after class talking to my students and talking to others. And so I thought, you know what, this is a great way to talk to people who are interested in this material. And also it's a lot of fun for me to put together um, the slides for it, the research for it. If you're listening on Spotify, I will describe all of the images Uh, that are in this slide um, show. Um, I'm a visual learner and I like visuals. Um, And so uh, many of you are audio learners or text learners. And so there's a little bit of that for everyone. So welcome. Uh, If you've been following me since the beginning or subscribed to my channel since the beginning, thank you so much. Uh, If you can, please rate and review uh, this really helps the and share. <laughs> this really helps the channel um, gain more exposure, especially with the algorithms and all of that things. So that being said, actually, one more thing before we dive in that I've been wanting to talk about and meaning to talk about. I am going to use the words uh, patriarchy and Greeks interchangeably here. And I wanted to say a couple of things. I did this really great um 
live last night with uh, Aeon Byte, uh, which is another great channel on YouTube if you uh, and Spotify everywhere, another great podcast channel. And one of the things that came up that I've been meaning to talk about a lot is this term patriarchy. And so I want to say that for me, the term patriarchy does not necessarily equal men. Uh, patriarchy is a system, obviously, you know that a framework, a system in which many men, or in fact, if we're talking about the Greeks, all men, uh, all was controlled, sorry, by all men. Uh, but patriarchy is a system in, is a, is a political system in which yes, men participate, but so do women. There are a lot of patriarchal women there are a lot of patriarchal people, actually even non-binary, non-gendered people that participate in a way in patriarchy. There's a lot of internal misogynism uh, in, in women and of course in men. Um, and so I, I just want to clarify that while I use that term and the Greeks, when I say the Greeks, I really mean the patriarchal Greeks, the leaders of the patriarchy, the authorities, um, and sometimes the philosophers and the writers, because we only have their stories. And a lot of these men, patriarchal men, that were writing the plays and writing the stories and writing down uh, the stories of the community were just singular people. Um, and it's their interpretation. And you can tell very easily, for example, in Hesiod, or of course, Homer, or others, um, that there is a misogyny um, perhaps unintentional. I don't know. I don't want to speak for them. And so when I will be saying patriarchy and Greeks, I want you to understand that we're talking about a system of power, a system of oppression, yes, of women, but also of many men. Um, and that is the umbrella under which we're having this conversation. Um, I think that men play a key role in helping us in helping humanity get through this transition phase in phase in which the old systems are no longer serving us and new systems must be put in place. Do I think that the new systems should be matriarchies? Yes. Um, do I think that the power of decision-making in the community should be given primarily to women? Yes. So that is my bias. Um, for a while, anyways, until we have, I guess, generations of people, of humans growing up under that umbrella. Um, that is my bias. You don't have to agree with that. Uh, and certainly we can, we don't have to agree on all things, but I just want you to understand where I'm coming from and yeah. And just know that in this conversation, since this is a one-sided conversation in the sense that I am speaking <laughs> and I am providing you with my evidence and my opinion on the, and my impression and interpretation of the uh, evidence, albeit academic, yes, and scholarly, um, I do want us to be able to engage in the conversations. And of course you engage through the comments. Um, and I like to engage with comments as well so that we can have a little conversation. Uh, one of my favorite ways to teach is conversational and very informal. Um, that is my teaching style. And so I, I want to clarify both for all genders, actually, I know I say a lot of men and women, but for all genders, um, that, patriarchy is 
a system of oppression and dominance that only very few uh, benefit from. Are they mostly men? Yes, there are a few women as well. And so that is the system that I am referring to. Um, all right. That being said, sorry for that little rant. I just want to put it out there because I've been thinking more and more about how to phrase that. I've been thinking about it more and more about what is a constructive way to deconstruct patriarchy uh, moving forward and how do we talk about power struggles and um, and a power, power hierarchy. My interest is to become more communal, more circular. Yes, more matriarchal in that sense. Um, but I would like to involve everyone in, in that transition and that change, which is why I love Artemis so much because I really see her as a complete divinity. She exhibits all the characteristics of being human um, without categorizing them as male or female. And so she exhibits all the characteristics of what it takes to be a, a human or a complete complete human, complete spirit, complete divine being. Um, Apollo, though, bringing us back to Apollo, Apollo does not. In fact, I would argue that Apollo exhibits solely the characteristics of being a patriarchal male. Um, and he uses those characteristics, or of course, those who tell the stories about him use those characteristics to propagate, to normalize uh, masculine behavior or what the Greeks would have identified as masculine behavior. And this behavior is extremely corruptive, extremely dominant and extremely abusive. And so, hey, this is an episode of all the ways Apollo sucks. So let's get into all the ways that he sucks. So let's talk a little bit about who is Apollo. You know what? What is his lineage? Where does he come from? Why? Why do we care? So in Greek mythology and later on in Roman mythology, Apollo is one of the most significant gods, okay, associated with various domains: music, prophecy, healing, and the sun. The sun is going to become very, very interesting and very significant, especially um, in the after the podcast episode which you can get on Patreon and have access on Patreon, um, where we talk about the lunar missions and what does the lunar mission have to do with the God of the sun? So we're going to talk about all of that in there and all of the uh, conspiracies. I say that in quotation marks around why the lunar missions are called Apollo. But here is some of Apollo's uh, parentage and history. So he's the son of Zeus, which of course is the Olympian Zeus and Leto. Leto is a Titaness. I don't know if people know that, that Leto is a Titan. Um, so one could argue that Zeus has an affair with his aunt-ish and uh, Leto then it becomes pregnant with Artemis and Apollo with twins. And um, in the Homeric hymns, uh, Leto is described as wandering around in search of a place to give birth. And finally, she lands, she finds the island of Delos where she gives birth. Now, his birth is interesting because when Leto is arrives in Delos, she gives birth to Artemis first. And Artemis then um, gives uh, helps birth Apollo, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Some of the divine attributes. So some of the things that people have said about Apollo, and I find in the modern world people obsess about Apollo, is that he is radiant and youthful. 
And so I was going to share with you guys, although there's way too many images, uh, the images of Apollo with a halo, the images of Apollo with a sun behind him. Apollo is often depicted as like blonde with blue eyes, you know, very Nordic European. Um, and and Homer, you know, talks about him of light eyes. He, Homer always talks about the gods as lighted eyes. I mean, there's something sort of divine about um, radiating sun. And there is a lot of play on words about Apollo and the sun and the son of Zeus, the son of the ultimate God. There's a lot of play on words, which we're going to talk about, especially in after the podcast, this, this connection between Apollo, the radiant sun and Jesus, the son of God. Um, and so he's also, he's, he's associated with the sun, with rays, with halos, etc. He also has a golden leer and he has bow and arrows, of course, um, he's famous for his musical talents. He's famous for his beauty, his grace. He is associated with prophecy, which we're going to talk about because he sort of, not sort of, he takes that association. He steals it. He destroy. He you know he takes it from someone else. He's he's a he's a colonialist in a sense. Um, and you might know his famous oracle located at Delphi, um, which we're going to talk about the Pythia, but. Uh, this is a, I don't want to give it too much away right away, but this is not something that comes naturally to him. So what I want to say, and what I will say is that Apollo is not naturally associated with prophecy. Uh, in fact, he colonizes that. Um, so not the nicest dude. Um, he has lots of relationships with mortals, which we're going to talk about. He has lots of relationships with um, semi-divine and divine beings. Um, some of his interactions are positive. In the fact that he has several um, mortal lovers that give him lots of sons, 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 sons. And so there's a lot of play on that word. Apollo only has sons, you know, or mainly has sons. Um, but he has a lot of negative interactions with um, his immortal and immortal beings. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the creepy ways in which Apollo loves his lovers. You know, he's a real... He's a real creeper. You know, he's he's one of those guys. You know what he reminds me of, actually? Not only just a frat boy, but he reminds me of one of those guys that's like stays after the club to see which woman might be sort of drunk enough to go home with him. You know, he's like those like leechy kind of guys. And, you know, the, the, you're kind of trying to get away from those dudes as much as possible. Um, yeah, he's just a little bit of a creeper. Yeah. So that's sort of my... Um, my interpretation and I've always felt creeped out by him always um in part because I don't think that good looks make a good person um in fact I don't think that talent makes a good person so if you're a great musician or a great I don't know athlete or a great whatever does not automatically mean you're a good person in fact you're sometimes often a bad person um or a bad human and so Apollo has always always creeped me out and I think, as you'll see, for many, many reasons. Speaking of Apollo's connection to Artemis. So I had someone that was very upset with the fact that I'm going to uh, bash Apollo in this episode. And one of the things they said to me is, oh, as a follower of Artemis, um, don't you feel bad talking about her twin brother? Uh, which to me is a, a little funny because it implies that these two are almost like real 
brother and sister. And to me, as a historian, I'm going to tell you in short that they that Apollo is a later addition, that Artemis and the worship of Artemis predates the invention, the creation of Apollo by centuries, perhaps millennia, if we go all the way back um, to the original Earth Mother, to the original mistress of animals, the Pontia Theron, to the original birth mothers like Eletheia, Dictina, and, and the and islands of Crete and other areas of the Aegean. So Artemis was around independently and Leto as well, because Artemis and Leto are sometimes interchangeable goddesses, if you go back enough, um, way before Apollo was introduced. So Apollo and actually all the men, all the male gods in the Olympian, in the, yeah, in the Olympic pantheon are introduced, you know, just before early Bronze Age. I would say the the earliest is early Bronze Age. I would even say Bronze Age, but um, because we don't have a particular starting point, right? We have a, a time when it's mainly goddesses, and then we have a time when suddenly the Olympians are here and they're powerful. And so it's very difficult to date exactly when um, the Greeks established their Olympic pantheon. But I, you know, I mean, you start with Hesiod as this sort of the first recorder of history, and then you you try to figure a way back to Homer and, and this kind of stuff. So dating becomes a little blurry, but I can say with confidence that Artemis was on this uh, planet worshiped by communities in many places throughout the Mediterranean and Europe in variety of forms as a mistress of animals and a hunter goddess way before Apollo becomes her brother. So what happens, you know, how, what is their connection? When the Greeks decided to take over much of the matriarchies that were in, uh, were established in the Aegean and the Mediterranean, they decided that they would attach many of these divine goddesses, divine goddesses is a double word, <laughs> <laughs> these goddesses to male gods they would sort of domesticate them they would give their powers to the masculine and so this happens to all if you think about all the goddesses for example Hera is given to Zeus and Aphrodite is given to Hephaestus although she's really unhappy about that so she ends up with Ares Demeter is sort of tied to Persephone in a really significant and deep way. Though so not necessarily a man, but definitely motherhood and definitely the sort of boundaries of motherhood. Um, Athena is tied to the men of military, so she's not actually given. Athena used to be a goddess of wisdom, um, and then she becomes a goddess of war. Um, so she becomes tied to the, the polis, to the to the politicians, to the authority, to the Senate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm trying to think about well, what are the other Olympians. Um, and of course, Artemis, as mistress of the wild and mistress of the animals, suddenly they're like, well, we can't marry her off. There seems to have been a boundary, which I love about Artemis. There's a boundary that she holds very, very fiercely. And I think in part because being seen as a wild woman, as a wild goddess, and because you need the wild to prosper. And I, this is just my psychology. I'm applying psychology to the Greeks. 
they were unable to sort of marry her off and give her children. So what they did was they gave her a brother, right? And so the way that they did that is, of course, Leto is pregnant, like I said before. She's she's um, trying to find a room at the inn. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen these parallels between Leto trying to find a place to give birth safely and the Virgin Mary trying to find a place to give birth safely to Jesus. There's a lot of that overlap. So Leto kind of goes around to different islands. She knocks on different doors at different villages. And there's lots of kings or leaders of the communities that don't want to piss off Hera, that don't want to get involved. And they say, no, no, no. Anyway, she arrives in Delos and she is she finds a, a safe place to give birth there. And Artemis is born first. No surprise that mother and daughter, that mother and daughter connection. Um, and then Artemis, who is, I guess, fully formed, um, helps to birth Apollo. So she becomes, in a sense, surrogate. She, this is how she is associated with Eletheia and Dictina and other birth goddesses. She takes that role. She becomes the protector of children because she gave birth to her twin brother. So he's her baby brother. He's her younger brother. And she's not particularly attached to him. Um, there are a few times that we'll see where they kill people together, particularly people that offend uh, their mother, um, which is something I approve of. And as we'll see next, actually, Apollo is really possessive and jealous of his sister. Um, and that is a relationship that is influenced by the patriarchal system. That is Apollo's jealousy and um, attempt at control over his sister is one of the ways in which the Greeks were able to put some try to put some boundaries around Artemis. So I don't feel that Artemis cares uh, that I'm saying the truth about Apollo. I don't really see. And, you know, if you read my book, I do talk about Apollo a little bit, but I purposely do not uh, focus on him in many ways, because in the places where Artemis is worshipped and in her rituals, there is no Apollo. You know, Artemis is a goddess of women. The And I mean, she does. I mean, the Spartans worshipped her as well. There's a couple of us. But there is no Apollo attached to her temple. However, there are a lot of um, places for Artemis in some of the Apollonian temples. Not all, but in some of them. So to me, this has never felt like a true sibling a relationship. Never. This is very clearly um, an invention and a, a forced association um, in which Artemis, since she cannot be contained under a marriage, as she has to remain Parthenos, which means unmarried. I know it all, you know, we interpret it as virgin, but really unmarried, uncontained, you know, untouched by men. Um, she then she must have a brother, which is again another way to create a, a so-called male guardian for her. But what really, really, um, I think disturbs not just me, but of course um, Artemis as well, is um, Apollo's involvement. Um, this slide is called the Toxic Twin: Apollo and the Death of Orion. Um, I've been fascinated by people's 
interpretation of the relationship between Artemis and Orion. I think, and as you can see in some of the images, there's lots of images in which it, and these are just some of them that I found. Um, there is a romantic implication that is implied. There is a deep love affair that is implied. Uh, and I think that is a very modern interpretation. So I'm going to read you some of the primary text. One, because I love primary text, even though, even though, like I've said at the beginning of our episode today, primary text is written by patriarchal men. However, it is primary text and I use it because it is our earliest version of the story, which means that everything that comes after is really an interpretation of the earliest version. And of course, everyone can interpret it as they like. But for me, I like to get to the earliest source. And so I really feel like the relationship between Artemis and Orion is exaggeratingly romantic. Certainly, there's no sexual intimacy between the two of them that happens. Um, it is my opinion that at best, they were besties who like to hunt together. At worst, they were Orion enjoyed the company of Artemis or enjoyed hunting and she's, she respected his hunting prowess. But there is nothing to suggest sexual intimacy or even sexual chemistry. However, that being said, Apollo still becomes excessively jealous in a very unnatural way because he's jealous of his sister. And so as a brother, that's a very, you know, a very patriarchal response um, for a brother to be jealous of a guy that may be in love with his sister or actually to be jealous that his sister may be attracted or may like or may like to hang out with someone else. To me, this also tells me that Artemis is really not that interested in hanging out with her brother. Um, although they're both hunters, they don't just run around the woods together. They don't spend time together. Um, you know, they don't they, they they perform certain things together because they have to and they're called on it, uh, but they don't spend time together. So let's talk a little bit about Orion um, and some of the primary source that I use in my podcast um, comes from theoi.com, T-H-E-O-I.com. I highly recommend this site because it has primary source collections that I think are easily accessible, especially in a, in a podcast uh, or in a maybe in a blog, you know, you always want to check your sources. And I think it's really great for some of us to have those sources in our libraries. Um, but I think at first, um, it's a great source to sort of land on. You know? And so for Orion, I've decided to use the source. I have looked for other sources, but honestly, so much of it is interpretation that it's, um, and so much of it is romantic interpretation. And I don't know how I feel about that. Um, so let me tell you the primary source interpretation. So we know that Orion uh, was a giant. I actually, I don't know if everyone knows that. So Orion was a good looking giant. Supposedly he's good looking. And he was, he's the, his father is Poseidon. And because his father is Poseidon, he has the ability to walk on water. Okay. And he serves King um, Onipion of Chios. And he's a great huntsman, okay? A great, great huntsman. Now, King Onipion punishes him 
for depends on the source raping his daughter seducing his daughter being interested in his daughter there's different levels of uh hesiod as i'll show you in a minute talks about how um orion gets drunk and he makes a pass at his daughter either way onipian is offended and he punishes orion by blinding him and exiling him from the island so then orion travels to lemnos to petition hephaestus to help in recovering his sight and Hephaestus gives him his assistant, Sedalion uh, or Kedalion, and directs him to this rising place of the sun where Helios restores his vision. Then Orion returns to Greece. He looks for Onipion to exact his revenge, but the king himself uh, hides himself away in an underground chamber so he can't get in. Yeah. Then, the, then the giant decides to retire to either Delos or Crete, where he becomes the hunting companion of the goddess Artemis. Okay. And after his death, which we're going to get to, um, he becomes, he is turned into the constellation of Orion. Now, if you read, if you listen to my episode on Artemis and Callisto, especially and Artemis and some of her lovers, many of her lovers end up constellations. I mean, this is true for many other gods, but, um, Becoming a constellation really meant that the god really liked you. Yeah? Uh, and there are there are various accounts. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you too, but there are various accounts of Orion's death. Some of them say that he wanted to marry Artemis so that their relationship may have been romantic. Uh, but Apollo becomes involved, he's so jealous that he tricks Artemis into shooting him to death, either while he's still swimming or in the forest. Um, in another version, though, Artemis slays him with her arrows after he rapes one of her handmaidens, Upis. Um, however, the most common <laughs> is that he brags, Orion brags that he could hunt down all the beasts of the earth so that he's a better hunter than Artemis and Artemis gets pissed off and slays him. Either way, there's very little romantic interpretations Um of this yeah um actually there's one in which he brags and the goddess gaia which is of course earth mother sends scorpion to destroy him and then of course this is why orion and scorpion are up in constellations so there are a variety of stories about orion and artemis um there is a story that the boeotians had among their stories that talks about uh, Orion is born under when the three gods, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hermes, urinate in a bull hide and bury it in the earth to provide King Herius with a son and heir. So there are stories in which Orion is born out of the urine that is poured into a bull hide that is then buried in the ground. I mean, so it's kind of funny, but Orion's name is derived from the ancient Greek word Oros and Orios. So Oros means mountain and Orios means urine. So I don't know. Uh, you tell me. Either way, there is clearly um, a story of this great huntsman who is a giant who has divine parentage, who becomes friends with Artemis. And for some reason, that friendship ends, whether it's Apollo, which I blame, of course, or whether um, Orion himself is such a braggart 
um, that Artemis or Gaia ends up saying, I know. So here is his what Hesiod says. So Hesiod reads uh, or writes uh, in this fragment uh, about 8th or 7th century BCE, which is about 2,700 years ago or 2,800 years ago. And he says, Orion was the son of Eurali, the daughter of Minos and of Poseidon. Again, another parentage. And there was given to him as a gift the power of walking on the waves and though as though upon the land. So there's a lot of Cretan history here. When he had when he came to Chios, he outraged Merope, the daughter of Anipion, being drunken. But Anipion, when he learned of it, was greatly vexed at the outrage, outrage, and blanded him and cast him out of the country. Then he came to Lemnos as a beggar, and there he met Hephaestus, who took pity on him and gave him Kedalion, his own servant, to guide him. So Orion took Kedalion upon his shoulders, because he's a giant, and used to carry him about while he pointed out the roads, while Kedalion pointed out the roads. Then he came to the east and appears to have met Helios, the son, uh, who healed his um, vision. And so he returned back to Anipion to punish him. But Anipion was hidden away by his people underground. Being disappointed then, in a search for the king, Orion went away to Crete and spent his time hunting in the company of Artemis and Leto. Notice here two things. Artemis and Leto are hunting together, and he spends time in their company. It seems that he threatened to kill every beast that there was on earth, whereupon in her anger, Gaia, the earth, sent up against him scorpion of a very great size by which he was stung and so perished. After after this, Zeus, at the prayer of Artemis and Leto, put him among the stars because of his manliness. And the scorpion also has a memorial of him and what had occurred. So notice that Hesiod says companion. Artemis has lots of companions. I would say it's already honorable enough that a male is allowed to be a companion for a time of Artemis and Leto. So to Hesiod, he is a companion. Now, Pseudo-Apollodorus, who writes about 500 years, no, uh, about 700 years later, he writes in the second century CE, which is about 1800 years ago. He tells us a little bit of a different story. So I want you to see the difference a little bit between five, 600 years of the telling of this story. So Pseudo-Apollodorus says, Artemis slew Orion on Delos. He was said to be a giant of massive proportion, born of Gaia, but Ferechdes, who is a sixth century poet, says that his parents were Poseidon and Uriel. Yes. From Poseidon, he was given the power of walking across the sea. His first wife was Side, who for vying with Hera in shapeliness was thrown by her into Hades' realm. So Hera was so jealous of his first wife that she threw her into the underworld. After that, Orion went to Chaos, where he courted Onipion's daughter, Merope. So here we have courted instead of raped or said something in a drunken stupor. Opinion, however, got him drunk, and as he slept, blinded him and tossed him out on the beach. He made his way to the bronze workshop of Hephaestus, where he seized a boy, Kedalion, set him on his shoulders, and ordered him to guide him towards the east. Once there, he looked up and was completely healed by the rays of Helios, the sun. Immediately, he started back to confront Anipion, but Poseidon, his own father, had provided Anipion with a house beneath the earth built by Hephaestus. Meanwhile, Eos, the dawn whom Aphrodite taunted with constant passion as punishment for sleeping with Ares, fell in love with Arion and took him off with her to Delos. There he was killed, according to some, 
for challenging Artemis to a discus match. Others say that Artemis shot him as he was forcing his attention on Opus, a virgin who had become who had come from the hyper Hyperboreans. And so these are the two stories, the primary sources. Actually, now that I think about it, I have not yet given you an example of where Apollo tricked um, Artemis into killing him, um, which is, of course, one of the main reasons why I would argue that she doesn't even like him. So here is a source in which um, we see what happens with the story of Apollo becoming involved. And this actually becomes a really popular source. And so pseudo Hygienius, who, who writes in the Astronomica, and he writes around the same time, actually, as Hesiod. So quite early, 8th to 7th century BCE. Um, and he writes a story called The Constellation of Orion. And he gives us the same idea that uh, the same, he gives us the whole same story. I don't want to read it to you all over again, you know, about him being kicked out by Onipion and then couldn't find him. And uh, comes to Crete and begins to hunt with Diana Artemis, okay? And so there is this mention here that he may have bragged or boasted to um, Artemis uh, that he can kill everything. However, uh, Callimachus tells us that he wished to offer some um, violence to Artemis, and that was maybe why um, she decided to kill him. But Sorry, I'm totally giving you two separate sources. But um, Pseudo-Hygienius tells us that Istrus, who says Diana, or Artemis, loved Orion and came near marrying him. Apollo took this hard and when scolding her, brought no results. So he tried to scold her for falling in love with Orion and this brought no result. On seeing the head of Orion, who was swimming a long way off. So Orion is swimming, although it's kind of weird that he's swimming because he can walk on water. But anyways, he's swimming. He wagered, uh, Apollo wagered Artemis that she couldn't hit with her arrows the black object in the sea. Since she wished to be called an expert in that skill, she shot an arrow and pierced the head of Orion. The waves brought a slain body to the shore and Artemis grievingly, greatly, grieving greatly that she had struck him and mourning his death with many tears, put him among the constellation. Yeah. And so there is, and this story is repeated later on through other sources, like first or second century sources. Um, and the retelling in that story is the very fact that um, Apollo is so jealous of Orion and Artemis spending time with Orion and perhaps Artemis wanting to marry Orion, although I do find that to be a little bit of a stretch, but okay. Um, that he scolds her, that he's, uh, he's telling her not to be with him, all this kind of stuff. And of course, Artemis is not going to listen to Apollo. She doesn't really like him, to be honest. Um, and so he tricks her into killing either her friend or someone that she may have been ready to become intimate with. Yeah. So there's no real description of other than that, that implication that perhaps she had wanted to marry him in that one source that I just mentioned, the other sources of jealousy are mostly the amount of time that Artemis is spending in the company of Orion. Either way, Orion is a friend, I'm going to call him a friend, a close friend of Artemis's. He's the only one allowed to hunt with her. So she really, I obviously admired his skill for hunting. 
I was going to say also, unlike Acteon, who she kills for sneaking up on her and who was also a great hunter, Artemis does not punish um, or send away Orion. So she must, she does like him. So much so that Apollo becomes jealous and he tricks her into killing this man. And in her sadness, she turns him into um, into a constellation. Okay, so so what? What else does Apollo do? Because this is not his first, uh, uh, you know, manslaughter, manslaughter, second degree murder. I don't know what that would be called when you encourage someone else, uh, conspiracy to commit murder, when you encourage someone else to kill someone. Um, but one of the most, I think, unforgivable aspects of uh, Apollo is the fact that he kills the python. So the python was this dragon serpent uh, that was set by Gaia to guard the Oracle of Delphi. Now, the Oracle of Delphi predates the Greeks or the establishment of the Greeks, predates even patriarchy. In fact, we have some evidence that it might have gone back to Neolithic times. And so that there was something about this place um, and that it was the domain of prophetesses or the oracle was always female, always, always, always female. Now, the association between women and snakes is as long as time, particularly around prophecy. Snakes and bees are the two prophetic animals that prophetesses use. So there was this long story of this dragon serpent uh, set by Gaia or you know, predates all of the Greeks before um, Apollo. And what makes a dragon serpent or a draco or a dracon is that it's a serpent with legs. And so not a snake per se, although over time serpent e begins to equal a snake, but a serpent is a much more powerful creature. And dragons are always um, symbols of prophecy. Snakes are symbols of prophecy, etc. So according to some authors, okay, the creature, the dragon was born, the serpent was born from the rotting slime left behind by the great deluge, the great flood. When Apollo claimed, came over and claimed the shrine. So he came over and he said, I'm taking over the shrine. He killed the python with a volley of a hundred arrows. And then the oracle and festival at Delphi afterwards was called the Pythia or a Pythian from the rotten pitho, the corpse of the beast. So I just want you to think about the Pythia. You know, many of us know the Pythia of Delphi, which is the Oracle of Delphi. But I want you to think about this image. So Apollo comes to conquer or colonize this space, of course, along with the patriarchal Greeks. They slayed the source of power and prophecy, which is the serpent, the, the python. And then they name the oracle or the prophetess, a Pythia or a Pythos, right? A Pythian, which comes from this idea of the corpse of the beast. So the disrespect, yeah, the disrespect, okay? Now, there are some stories that try to clear, some later stories that say, oh, well, Apollo tried to avenge his mother Leto by slaying the monster because she had been relentlessly pursued by the dragon during her long um, pregnancy, I'm going to say that's nonsense. And and by that, I mean that that is, that's, a, you know, those are the uh, apologists for Apollo, right? Um, he commits this act, a very clear, hostile takeover, hostile um, 
colonization. I like this word because I think it implies exactly what I mean. Uh, this uh, this dragon, this dracon, uh, is described often as female, uh, sometimes as male. So sometimes the Greek art equates her with echidna, which was half woman, half woman, the dracana. Uh, and then she consorted with the giant, of course, Typhus. Uh, often, I would say, in most of the early tradition, this python is female. So it's ironic to me, it's unforgivable to me that that Apollo comes over to slay and then um, also, you know, replaces the uh, the very creature that he defeated with um, a female prophetess. It, it's it's unforgivable. Yeah, it's unforgivable. Um, it is probably, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the worst act that I'd like to talk about today, but it is definitely one of like, you know, the top two acts. Uh, and so instead of the Python, um, Apollo then um, sits, uh, uh, what do you call it? On, on top of, you know, the, the mound of Delphi. Um, we're told that there's a story in which he seated upon the um, um, Omphalus stone at Delphi, which is uh, the prophetess stone at Delphi, he placed there uh, the python's head and breast, right? So it's just a really disturbing, a really disturbing uh, story. Now, the Homeric hymn to Apollo gives us a view of how this happened. Yeah. And it's actually quite disturbing. So I'm going to read it to you, the, for the primary source. So straight away, large eyed queenly Hera, large eyed queenly Hera, this is what the Homeric described, took him, so Typhon or Typhus, and bringing one evil thing to another, such as gave him the Dracaena or the Python when she received him. And this Typhon used to work great mischief among the famous tribes of men. Okay. So notice the patriarchal take. Whosoever met the Dracaena, the day of doom would sweep him away until the Lord Apollo, who deals death from afar, shot a strong arrow at her. Then she, rent with bitter pangs, lay drawing great, grasps, great gasps of breath and rolling about that place. An awful noise swelled up, unspeakable, as she writhed continuously this way and that. And so she left her life, breathing it forth in blood. Then Apollo boasted over her. Now rot here upon the soil that feeds men. You at least shall live no more to be a fell bane to men who eat the fruit of all the nourishing earth and who will bring hither perfect hecatombs. Against cruel death, neither Typhus, which was her consort, shall avail you nor ill-famed Chimera, her spawn. But here shall the earth and shining Hyperion or Helios make you rot. Thus said Apollo, exulting over her, and darkness covered her eye, and the holy strength of the sun made her rot away there. Wherefore the place is now called Pitho, and men call the Lord Apollo by another name, Pythian, because on that spot the power of piercing Helios made the monster rot away. I mean, guys, everyone, what is this story? So Hera, yeah? Gives Typhon, Dracaena, the Python dragon, as a wife, but yet he's her consort. Anyways, that's another story for another day. 
And she brings doom and mischief, mischief among men. So notice the patriarchal removal of the oracle prophetess power of the python that was already there for millennia before these patriarchal men take over. Not only that, but okay, Apollo shoots his arrows at her, but there's this very descriptive, uh, this is, you know, 7th century BCE, you know, 27, 2800 years ago. So again, that time of the Greeks as they're establishing themselves. And um, this death is uh, gory. It's very gory death. And then Apollo stands above her, right? And says, I love the language here because it's very Genesis. I don't know if you've heard it as I was reading, but it's very, very Genesis. And it, it, it is that patriarchal attempt to break the relationship between the power of snakes and serpents and dragons and the oracle prophetess intuition of women. Um, and in fact, this uh, hymn to Apollo by this Homeric hymn literally says that this is the thing that creates mischief among men. That is a patriarchal idea because, of course, for a thousand years, men and women lived very, very well with the Dracaena and the prophecies of Delphi. I mean, is, this is a complete invention, but it's because in order to break that relationship, you must make the beast a monster, right? And then break, kill, destroy, and replace. And that's exactly what Apollo does. So he really is the embodiment of patriarchal corruption and destruction. And this is why I use the word colonialist around him because he really is the the fore image of the colonization of the Greeks, and I'm I'm sticking all the Greeks here and together. But this colonization of this patriarchal community that comes into the Mediterranean or or develops in the Mediterranean and sort of takes over the very matrilineal, matrifocal. Um, aspect of this area and so it's yeah it's it's upsetting it's um it's in fact devastating yeah um another homeric uh, in the same homeric hymn um just before this actually just a few lines before this we are told that near delphi was a sweet flowing spring uh, and there his strong there with his strong bow the Lord Apollo, the son of Zeus, killed the bloated great Dracaena, a fierce monster, want to do great mischief upon men uh, upon the earth, the men themselves, and in their thin shanked sh and to their thin shanked sheep, for she was very bloody plague. Yeah. So he kills the the python. He kills the pythia. Uh, he replaces actually. It's not that he replaces, actually, sorry, I'm saying that wrong because there was always a female oracle here, but he takes the name uh, of the Pythian Apollo. He takes control of that space. He then be he then becomes the god through which the prophetess, the Pythia, receives prophecy. So he, yeah, he basically colonizes the space. Yeah. You're all like, okay, Carla, we get it. He's a colonizer. He's the colonizer. Yeah. Great reasons not to like him. Moving on, uh, I have a couple of, I mean, there's a lot. We can be here forever, friends. But I've decided to choose a couple of um, plagues and uh, tortures 
that Apollo is a part of, uh, people that he kills, he flays, um, and he and he hurts. So I thought I would start with the flaying of Marcias. So in this myth, um, Marcias is a satyr. So again, he represents the wild, right? Uh, he's half man, half goat. And actually, we're told that Marcias is the inventor of the lyre. And he is the one that creates this musical instrument. And Marcias says, you know, I think that I can play better in the in the thing that I invented than you, Apollo. And he does prove to be a formidable opponent. And Apollo becomes enraged. Uh, so they have this contest. Uh, you know, Marcias kind of dares him. Let's see which one of us is a better um, musical player, let's say, a better musician. And Apollo becomes enraged. And he wins this contest. And it's not enough that he wins this contest. His ego is so massive that as punishment for Marcius' uh, audacity, Apollo flay, flays him alive. Yeah. And so there's this whole imagery of Apollo tying him to a tree and flaying him. Flaying means cutting his skin, all of his skin off his body alive. So a very grotesque punishment by Apollo for the daring, the daring to challenge him. Um, now, this is not that unusual to the gods, particularly the male gods of the Olympian, daring the gods or being better than them, but also to Athena. You know, she has a couple of egotistical tortures um, and, and punishments. And so this is not that unusual for a god, but it is still disturbing because clearly Apollo's... Um, Ego can't take being challenged. Then we have the killing of Niobe's children. Now, in this case, it's both Apollo and his sister Artemis. Niobe makes the mistake. She's a mortal queen and she has, you know, 14 children, 16 children, depends which myth you read. And she boasts that her children are more beautiful than the children of Leto, which are, of course, Artemis and Apollo. And Leto is uh, so offended at Niobe's arrogance that she decides to send her twins to kill all of uh, Niobe's children. So um, in some myths, Niobe has seven daughters and, so and seven sons. In some myths, she has nine daughters and nine sons. Either way, Apollo and Artemis show up and shoot their arrows into the children. And in some myths, they kill all the children. So Niobe has none. And in some myths, they kill um, everyone except one boy and one girl. So that Niobe is left with two children. Either way, this is really vicious. Uh, again, vicious vengeance for hubris, right? Niobe is um, performing hubris, which is thinking that you're better than the gods in some way. Um, then we have the murder of the Cyclops. Yeah. Um, and so the Cyclops are the Cyclops are these giants, these one-eyed giants, right? And um, Apollo ends up killing Cyclops out of, again, rage. And he's upset because um, Zeus has killed his own son. So the story says that Zeus slays Apollo's son Asclepius. Asclepius is the god of healing with a lightning bolt. That Zeus doesn't like the fact that Asclepius is healing humans because Zeus also has a big ego. And um, he slays Asclepion, the god of healing. And in retaliation, Apollo slays the Cyclops, 
who had forged the gods' weapons, so the ones that made the lightning bolts. Okay, uh, according to Pherecydes, as cited by uh, Euripides, these were not the three immortal Cyclops, but rather their sons. So they were probably the four named Eurylos, Eletrios, Tracheos, and Halimedes by Strabo. At least Strabo and Nonus call them that. Um, but the other sons, the sons of Uranus, like Gives, Brontus, and Steropi, were immortal, and they continued um, making lightning for Zeus. So this is a little bit uh, of an an ego battle between father and son. Yeah. Uh, Pseudo Apollodorus tells us that Zeus was afraid that men might learn the art of medicine from Asclepius and help each other out, so he hit him with a thunderbolt and killed him. This angered Apollo. And then slew, who slew the Cyclops, for they designed the thunderbolt of Zeus. Zeus was about to throw Apollo into Tartarus, but at the request of Leto, he ordered him instead to be some manservant for a year. So Apollo does serve um, a sentence by becoming a human and being someone's, well, no, by becoming a human servant uh, for a year. So this is not the most erroneous or the most hideous of Apollo's crimes. We have a couple of those to come. But um, just some of the murders in which um, he is involved. And then, of course, in the Trojan War, we know that Apollo um, takes offense to the Greek hero, to Achilles, for desecrating uh, Hector's body. So Apollo, uh, Hector is, seen, is said to be the son of Apollo. Apollo is the god of the Trojans. This is what made the Trojans so popular and so famous. Uh, that they had lots of gold in their temple for Apollo because Apollo likes lots of gold because it's equated with the sun and with brightness and with light and all these kinds of things. And so the Trojans, as the favorite of the of Apollo as a community, thrive, and therefore the Greeks, you know, they want some of that gold. When Achilles kills Hector and he drags him around, um, Apollo gets really, really pissed off. And so he aids the Trojans in battle, causing difficulties for Achilles. Um, and eventually he helps Paris kill Achilles by letting him know um, what is Achilles' weakness. Yeah, uh, We're also told that Apollo sends plagues to the Greek army as, uh, you know, as punishment for Agamemnon's refusal to release either Helen, uh, sorry, to release a Captain Trojan priestess. So there is this um, tradition that, uh, and again, this is not unique to Apollo, but it's just annoying to him, that gods have favorites. In this case, Apollo really favors the Trojans and that he, he dents, you know, all of the, um, the attempts of the Greeks. He's not a fan of the Greeks, which is weird because the Greeks adore him. Um, but again, there's lots of layers to this that perhaps we don't have time to go into today. There's lots of layers uh, of Greek worship of the Olympians and particularly of Apollo and particularly of Apollo's uh, favorites. But he does get involved in the Trojan War. He does punish, he does kill Achilles. Well, he Paris kills Achilles, but he does assist in that. And he causes havoc to the Greeks along the way. Right? He's not a fan of, uh, he's he's definitely a fan of the Trojans. And of course, this might explain why Aeneas, who is the Roman version of Odysseus, 
or Odysseus's journey, um, claims, of course, to be a Trojan, or we're told that Aeneas is a Trojan. And the Romans adapt Apollo as sort of their famous sun god because of this Trojan connection. And so the Romans love Apollo so much that he's the only god whose name they don't change. They really like that name. They really like that god. He becomes a primary god for the name for the Romans because the Romans believe themselves as descendants of the Trojans and because the Trojans are the favorite of Apollo. And so as a result, then the Romans are a favorite of Apollo as well. Um, and so therefore a favorite of a sun god. And so there's this long tradition, I think, of admiration for Apollo, despite the fact that he has very little, if any, uh, positive qualities. Um, moving on to a danger for all women. Why is Apollo a danger to all women? So I'm going to give you a couple of um, of examples for why Apollo is a danger to women. And I'm going to pick three. I'm going to pick Bolina, Daphne, and um, and Cassandra. But there are several. Yeah, so I have a short list of Apollo assaulting women that I didn't put up here. But for example, <laughs> Milia was an Okinid or an Oceanid nymph who was abducted from the home of her father to taken to Thebes by the god Apollo. Her brother, Canthos, was sent to retrieve her and after burning down the temple of Apollo, was slain by the god. Melia herself was the mother of two sons, Teneros and Ismenos, and perhaps Chios, unless the mother of this hero was another Melia. So after he abducted her, he took her. After he killed her brother, um, they had two children together. Yeah. Os Okiroe was another nymph of the island of Samos, the Greek Aegean, who was pursued by Apollo and refuged on a boat leaving the island. The wrathful god turned the boat to stone and the skipper into a pilot fish. So another woman who tries to run away from him and as a punishment, he turns them to stone. Dryope was a princess of Dryopia, central Greece, seduced by Apollo in the form of a turtle. And she bear, bore him a son named Amphisos. So he turned into a turtle, just like his father, who turns into a swan and a golden shower and all these kinds of things, and seduces this woman into giving birth to a son. Cronus, who is a princess of Oikalia in Thessalia, northern Greece, was a lover of Apollo. But when the god discovered her so-called infidelity with a mortal man, he demanded that Artemis strike her down. However, their child Asclepios, which we just talked about, the healing, the god of medicine, was rescued from the pregnant belly of the dead mother. So another victim of Apollo. The Sibylla, and there's lots of Sibyls that are killed by Apollo because they don't want to be their prophetess. So a Sibylla is a prophetess or a priestess, mostly a prophetess. But this one, Sibylla Cumia, uh, is a prophetess of Cumai in southern Italy, and she was loved by Apollo. Um, apparently she decided to trick him into granting her an unnaturally long life, but refused to lie with him. <laughs> this happens a lot, apparently. And so was cursed by the God. So these are some of the short stories. There's lots, lots of Sybil stories in which he offers them prophecy powers. Sometimes they, sometimes we're told they trick him into saying yes, but then don't want to have sex with him. So there's something about Apollo that is repugnant to women. Women do not want to have sex with him. Yes, I know you might. Those of you who you know love Apollo or Apollo apologists, 
Are you going to give me a list of a bunch of women who have sons for him? Yes, I know. But many, many, many women, in fact, more women than for any other God, even Zeus, prefer death, turning to stone, turning to trees, turning to plants, drowning themselves, throwing themselves out of windows, rather than having sex with this God. So there is something repugnant about this God, you know? So repugnant that we have so many stories of them trying to escape. So the story of Bolina, uh, the story of Bolina is really fun. She is a Corinthian uh, sea nymph. So obviously lots of nymphs uh, seduced by Apollo. Definitely frat boy energy um, or fuck boy energy like they say. Um, she's a she's a Corinthian nymph, a sea nymph of the spring or well town in Bolina in southern Greece. Bolina was once a mortal girl who, fleeing the amorous pursuits of the god Apollo, leapt into the sea um, and was transformed. Some people say she was transformed into a fish or a dolphin. Some people say she was a human, a mortal woman who then, because he tried to seduce her and she did not want to be seduced by him, when she jumped into the water, became a nymph. Either way, and she would have preferred to drown rather than um, be seduced by Apollo. Uh, another myth that you may be more familiar with, of course, is the Apollo and Daphne myth. Um, and here again, uh, in this myth, so in this myth, the there are some stories that argue that Apollo was struck by arrows, okay? And that's why he falls in love with Daphne. But some of the original sources or the early sources do not say that. So I'm going to go with, mm, yeah, probably not. However, uh, Daphne does not want uh, Apollo. And she doesn't want him so, so bad that she prays and prays that she's running away from him to be anything else rather than the object of his affection. And he be she becomes transformed into a laurel tree to escape him. Okay. Um, and so there's always these sort of kind of later stories that go, oh, yeah, Apollo was struck by arrows uh, to love Daphne. And Daphne was struck by arrows to not love um, Apollo. These are what I call Apollo apologists. But early sources, for example, you know, and even as far back as first century and second century BCE, like Parthenius, for example, talk about how... Um, Daphne was a, a woman who didn't want to have anything to do with men. And for some reason, that's really hot, right, for Apollo. Um, some people say that she's a, a nymph. There's lots of uh, talk about her being a nymph and that she was loved by Apollo. Uh, and he just kept running after her and running after her until she grew, she grew so exhausted that she called out to Gaia for help. And the goddess transformed her into a laurel tree. But then, just like the colonialist of the Pythia, Apollo adapts the laurel tree as his sacred plant. I mean, is this like stalker behavior or not, right? So you have this um, mortal, non-mortal, whatever it is, a maiden who you fall in love with and you do not, she does not want you, but you chase her and chase her and chase her and chase, right? Stalker syndrome, chase her and chase her. She doesn't want to until she literally gives up her life begs you know of course any goddess and in this case Gaia to turn her into literally anything else so Gaia turns her into this this tree and Apollo decides to 
take ownership of this tree and forevermore be associated with the laurel tree um, and the laurel sort of as a as a as his own symbol drives me crazy. Uh, so that it's almost like even after her death and the consequently tree uh, laurel trees that are sort of birthed right out of laurel trees are his ownership and he wears it like it's creeping me out like he wears it almost like a second skin right like he wears it on his head whatever but still what the most one of the most disturbing the most disturbing story so i was going to read you prethenius's story uh where he writes and he's um he says that he's borrowing from someone in the third century BC. So this is a, a very primary source, 2300, 2500 years ago. This is how the story of Daphne, the daughter of Amyclas, is related. She used never to come into town, nor consort with other maidens. But she got together a large pack of hounds and used to hunt. Very, very interesting Artemis um, imagery, either in Laconia or sometimes going into the further mountains of the Peloponnese. For this reason, she was very dear to Artemis. Again, another way that Apollo screws his sister and betrays her. Artemis gave her the gift of shooting straight. On one occasion, she was traversing the country of Elis, and there, uh, Leucippus, the son of Animas, fell in love with her. He resolved not to woo her, though, in any of the common way, but assumed women's clothes and in the guise of a maiden, joined her hunt. As it so happened, she became very soon extremely fond of him. So this is a guy who is in falls in love with this hunter woman, knows that she has no male companions. So he decides to dress himself as a woman and become one of her female companions to which she becomes attached to. Okay. So she becomes extremely fond of him, nor would she let him quit her side, embracing him and clinging to him at all times. So this really also points towards the lesbian relationship between women um, Parthenius here really is implying that there's a, an intimacy, you know, he's not implying sexual contact, but a very deep intimacy, uh, that is her favorite, that she's touching him all the time, that she's hugging him all the time, that she sits on his lap, her lap all the time, that there's this very close, perhaps almost romantic relationship between the women. But Apollo, here comes Apollo, was so, was also fired with love for the girl. And it was with feelings of anger and jealousy that he saw Lekipos always with her. He therefore put it into her mind to visit a stream when Lekipos was there to bathe. On their arrival there, so her and her maidens and everybody, including Lekipos, they all began to strip. And when they saw that Lekipos was unwilling to follow their example, they tore his clothes from him. And when thus they became aware of the deceit that he had practiced and the plot he had devised against them, they all plunged their spares into his body. Then by the will, he, by the will of gods, disappeared. But Daphne, seeing Apollo advancing upon her, took vigorously to flight. And then as he continued to pursue her, she implored, in this case, Zeus, that she might be translated away from mortal sight. And she, has supposed, and she is supposed to have become the laurel tree, which is called Daphne, after her. So, I mean, talk about trauma. Talk, I mean... I, so this is what I think I don't like about Apollo is that he is just so insidiously mean and cruel. He falls in love with, in this story, he falls in love with, you know, a, a woman who is very clearly drawn a boundary about not being interested in men who is already being betrayed by this dude, Lakibus. But Apollo 
decides to break her heart by revealing Lachipus's deceit. And then at, right after her heart is broken, he comes in and he goes, oh, but I'd like to have sex with you now. And then she's like, no, thanks. And she starts to run away and he chases and chases her. And she's so terrified, horrified, frightened, betrayed, heartbroken. Um, Apollo has no sensitivity whatsoever. All he wants is to have sex with her. Um, that she begs to be turned into a tree. And then he takes the laurel tree as his symbol. It's unforgivable. I mean, you tell me. It's unforgivable. It's it's beyond unforgivable. Beyond. Yeah. Um, and lastly, let me see. Yes, before we come to the end. Lastly, I would like to talk about Cassandra, which I think is the greatest violation, the greatest cruelty. I mean, we've seen Apollo do some cruel things already, right? But this, I would say, is the greatest cruelty that Apollo inflicts on anyone. And that is Cassandra. So the story of Cassandra is a story of sadness. I actually met someone um, while I was away in Vancouver whose name was Cassandra. And she said to me, you know, my whole life people told me that my name means somebody who lies. And I was so disturbed by this interpretation. I mean, this is a grown woman, you know, I mean, 35 years old. And I thought, are you serious? Like, do you really? Do you really believe that your name is based on someone that lies? Um, and so... I was really disturbed. I've always been disturbed by, by Cassandra. I think she's the most tragic figure in history of women, one of the most tragic figures. Um, so who's Cassandra? She's the daughter of King Priam. She's a Trojan and King Hecuba of Troy. Her elder brother was Hector, the hero of the Greek-Trojan War. The older and most common versions of this myth state that she was admired by the god Apollo, who sought to win her love by means of the gift of seeing the future. So again, he wanted to give her the gift of prophecy, the gift of seeing the future. According to Aeschylus, and Aeschylus is one Greek playwright that is one of the misogynist Greek playwrights, uh, although he does write some great plays. Aeschylus tells us that she had promised him favors before receiving the gifts. But most of the early sources tell us that is not the case, that Apollo fell in love with her and wanted her so much that he offered her the gift of prophecy. And then said, in order to receive the gift of prophecy, you must have sex with me, okay? So in other sources, such as Hygenius, for example, a pseudo-Apollodorus, Cassandra breaks no, no promise to Apollo, but rather the power of foresight is pushed upon her as an enticement to enter a romantic engagement. And she says no, because again, Apollo must be so repugnant that no one wants to have sex with him, even with the gift of prophecy. Because she doesn't want to have sex with him, he curses her, um, saying that you will have the gift. You will take this gift of prophecy. I'm going to give you this gift of prophecy, uh, whether you like it or not. But no one will ever believe your prophecies. Yeah. And so Cassandra then, for her whole life, is cursed with foretelling the future. Of course, she tells Hector, she tells Priam, she tells all the Trojans about the fact that they're going to be defeated by the Greeks and nobody believes her. What's even more devastating, everybody sort of shifts it to the side, is that when the Trojans are defeated, she runs into the temple of Athena as Ajax, one of the Greeks, follows her and she is raped in the temple of Athena in front of Athena and nobody helps her. What's even more disturbing 
is that after that, she becomes the bounty gift, the booty gift, the bounty gift um, of Agamemnon. Agamemnon takes her because she is a princess of Troy and he takes her home with her. So he takes her after the war as a, as a prisoner, as a concubine, and he takes her home. And of course, Agamemnon doesn't know that Clytemnestra, who I love, of course, you're not surprised, is waiting at home enraged at the fact, of course, that Agamemnon has killed her daughter Iphigenia before the Trojan War. So Agamemnon decides to show up home 10 years later or whatever it is, well, at least 10 years later. And he walks into Clytemnestra and he's like, yeah, so I came back. I know we, I killed our daughter, but like, you know, had to do it. Um, but also I brought this concubine who's going to be my next consort, who's like totally hot, perhaps even hotter than you. So like, you know, find her a room and take care of her. At which point the doors closed. The doors closed. <laughs> and uh, Clytemnestra takes a knife and stabs Agamemnon, on which we all cheer. Yes, 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 yes. Avenge your daughter. Uh, unfortunately, she also kills Cassandra. Uh, she also stabs Cassandra to death. So Cassandra has the most tragic of life. And it, it is one of the most unforgivable acts for me of Apollo, because it is not just selfish and cruel. It is sadist or sadistic. Um not only does he punish her, he 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 enjoys the punishment and the consequences of that just become more and more and more and more dire. Uh, and Cassandra has the most tragic life at the hands or at the reason uh, of Apollo, because either if she wasn't a prophetess, then she wouldn't have known what's coming. And so then she would have just lived her life and other traumatic things would have happened to her. Or if she was a prophetess that was believed, of course, the story would be completely different and she would be alive, perhaps. So Apollo really not just ruined her life, but sadistically put her through violence, abuse, assault, trauma, and eventually a tragic death. And so those are my main arguments for why Apollo sucks. And he sucks so, so, so much. Now, if you'd like to join me in after the podcast, uh, where uh, I'm going to talk about how, why Apollo takes the moon, please find me on Patreon. Uh, I don't often like to separate or like gatekeep information. However, Patreon is a fantastic way for me to be able to continue to do my research. Um, and your support means a lot to me. And thank you to those of you who are supporting me on Patreon. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that help. Um, for those of you who are not on Patreon, um, I would like to say thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, please feel free to drop in the comments what you think, what your reactions are, how do you feel about some of this material. Again, please feel free to rate and review um, and subscribe and share with anybody that you think might like this podcast channel and might like this kind of topic next uh in the coming week or two we have uh we're going to talk about goddesses who carry the light uh so light bringers goddesses who carry torches uh and what does that mean because i have some theories for you my friends of all the goddesses that carry torches um from sort of early you know 
Minoan times to the Statue of Liberty. Um, lots of connections there with torch bearing and with light bringing and with this concept of phosphorus or lucifera or morning star and all of these kinds of things so that's going to come up next so if you enjoy this episode you will enjoy that episode as well again thank you thank you so much for those of you that want to learn more about artemis um, please grab my book she who hunts follow me all over social media at artemis expert and i will see you all next time